Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. When Esperanza Spalding won Best New Artist at the Grammys in 2011, she made headlines for two reasons. One, she was the first ever jazz musician to win the award. And two, she stole Best New Artist from Justin Bieber. The Beliebers are still pissed. Since that first big win, Esperanza has won three more Grammys and released seven studio albums, including 2017's Exposure which was conceived, written, and recorded entirely in 77 hours on Facebook Live. In 2018, she released 12 Little Spells. It was inspired by the Japanese healing art Reiki, with each song composed as a spell for a specific part of the body. Looking at her body of work and how she's evolved from a young, prodigious stand-up bass player and jazz composer to an experimental multimedia conceptual artist, it's easy to see why Esperanza Spalding sees herself as more than a jazz musician. But her improvisational approach to turning abstract ideas into emotionally moving pieces of music pretty much makes her the personification of jazz, whether she likes it or not. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Esperanza sat with Bruce Hedlum in Brooklyn to talk about the instinctual way she makes music, jamming with Joni Mitchell, and the opera she's writing with the legendary Wayne Shorter that's set to be released next year. Wow, this place is really beautiful. It's a nice studio. It's got a good vibe and it's huge. This is actually... Reminding me how much I love to be in the studio. It's been about a year, and I think that means it's time to go back soon. You haven't been in a studio in a year? Mm-hmm. And was for that, that was for 12 little spells? It was for the four bonus spells. It's oh. actually 16 little spells now because okay. because of some of the finagling that one must do when you're dancing through the music industry. <laughs> you mean you, between... you wanted 16 originally, but they don't No, I wanted you... 12. Okay. And for there to be a second wave and reason to talk about the project again uh, I was asked and encouraged to write for more songs because apparently I'm I've yet to grow into the awareness of what it is to generate music as commodity Mm -hmm. my first instinct is always to figure out a way to just release it big and around and wide Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to release the 12 little spells one every day at 12, 12, leading up to my birthday. And I, I wanted to just blast them out because I wanted the the effect of the spells to reach as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's it's hard to capitalize on that approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
in collaboration with the label, we came up with the idea of, well, let's make four more bonus spells, and then there's a reason to go get the record. So, mm-hmm. Now, we should explain okay. 12 Little Spells, which was your last full album. Yeah. Uh, was They were 12 songs, now 16, but they were based on different parts of the body. Correct. Did yeah. the concept come first for that, or mm-hmm. did the songs come first? It came as a hit, almost like an instruction manual. Um, I can remember I was in transit. I don't remember from where to where, but I know that by the time I got home to my apartment, I had written out the outline of the whole project, that it was 12 Little Spells and the title, and what the title was saying, which was an announcement of what this work is as an interim piece before the next big project. Mm -hmm. So the title is 12 Little Spells to Tide You Over Till the Next Full Thing. Touch Touch in mind. The longing deep down you have to dance. Now know all limbs are readying to rise, dancing the animal with others. And it was a, it's a sort of poem explanation of what this project is until the next project, which is about dancing and movement and mm-hmm. dancing that, the wild, untethered free forms of dance with structured presentation. Um, yeah, so by the time I got home, here were the song titles. Here were their effects on the body, and I had my instruction manual. And then I spent a month and some change just assembling that structure, assembling that entity from the instruction manual. So you wrote all that on the subway? No, I wrote it all in a castle in Italy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the download- Your life is sounding better and better, la- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. That was amazing. Every morning I would be- um, you know, go from where you pick up your espresso in the morning if you so desired. And they had me in the converted pig pen because I, w- I didn't want to be in the cast because I figured it would be extremely haunted. So I would go get my espresso and then walk around the periphery of the castle back towards my converted pig pen, which is on another, you know, p- uh, part of the grounds. And I would pass Azar Nafisi almost every day, who mm-hmm. was working on her book. And just that process of witnessing you know a master craftsman sitting and witnessing the development of their piece page by page you know was the fuel part of the fuel i think um for making this happen because you know the creative process is abstract it feels sometimes like you're doing nothing so it was so encouraging and affirming to witness another person in that practice accumulating that body that they came to work on now there's always the descriptions of you you're a prodigy you're this you're that I would like to lean into the microphone okay. now and um, dispel those myths that I was a prodigy or anything like that. I I wasn't a prodigy. I'm I have a talent in music and I found my way early on. But mm-hmm. I have seen prodigies and I know prodigies and it's a thing. It's like a spe- it's like a subset of the species, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just. I partly want to dispel that myth because I think it it's misleading. You know, it makes it seem like maybe there's something special or something different fundamentally about, you know, my makeup as an as an entity, as a humanoid. And it's not true. You know, there there are some folks who are and they're exceedingly rare. Mm-hmm. And then there are other folks who just figured out a way to get a lot of practice in. Early on, <laughs> and well, it accumulates, and then yeah. you can do things that other ten-year-olds can't do. But it's not necessarily because I was a prodigy; it's because I, I played a lot. You know, I practiced a lot. Well, is that good? Because you know, prodigies, and you know, being a prodigy often is it's it's maladaptive. Mm. They don't. Mm. It's if you're great at something when you're five, mm. often you're doing the same thing at thirty-five, and people wow. are, you know, there's always those those great classical musicians who mm. are you know who are described as the 50 year old child prodigy mm, you know and they can't kind of get past mm-hmm. what what they right. did at a certain age right and i the part that i resonate with about that quote unquote prodigy part is simply the part where nobody can explain why you can do what you can do you know mm-hmm. and I, I think part of what sets a prodigy apart is that for the same amount of time that their friend in the music school puts in, this kid just gets more done somehow. Somehow mm-hmm. they're just able to do more for reasons that nobody can explain. Right. And 
at a certain point when you want to expand past what it is you've become good at, but you don't remember why you can do what you do, that is intimidating and stressful. It can be. And I can't appreciate why you wouldn't you wouldn't lean into that territory. Um, and there are some aspects about, you know, my practice that I, it's like what I was saying before, the divination. There are some aspects that I don't know, I don't know how that happens or how it works. But when I try to apply that to like a new medium, let's say like writing an opera, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, then you discover like, mm, okay, there's a process here. There's a, there's a skill set that must be developed to yield the same results over here as I'm able to yield over there okay. without having necessarily mastered that skill set, you know? Mm-hmm. So just saying, I have compassion for the, the 50 year old child prodigies mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your first experience of music then? What do you remember? Well, it would be my mother singing in the house and making up little songs about whatever was happening in the moment. So she she had this one, you don't need to cry because your mama is by your mama who will love you and will never, never leave you. You don't need to cry because your mama is by. You know, I don't know yeah. where that comes from. But she she would always have this sort of soundtrack happening to life. Um, there was like a wake-up song. There was a prepping a meal song. Um, and that is my first memory of music. My first memory of music um, out there was hearing your ma on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Like I've said that so many times in my life, but it, it was. And hearing Yo-Yo Ma, hearing on. Yo Ma, hearing the Bach cello suite. I don't know if it was Yo Ma or it was the Bach cello suites, but either way, he was the vehicle. And um, on Mister Rogers' neighborhood, on Mister Rogers' neighborhood, wow. Um, which also the interesting piece about that episode is after Yo Ma performed, they went to make believe. Land, mm-hmm. and in that episode, the next thing that happened is Lady Aberlin <laughs> was dressed as an upright bass, and the other woman character was playing an upright bass. And I don't have a conscious memory of seeing that, but that again was like the download that all came <laughs> at once. And then it's a humbling reckoning of like oh i'm again just i'm just following the programming that i didn't even realize i received you know at five so now is that just a memory or on mr rogers neighborhood no that actually happened that's that's really have you seen it since i only know that that happened because i've seen it since i don't have a conscious memory of seeing that in the episode what i remember is hearing i didn't know it was about tells me at the time i can remember the the prickling and the (gasps) this um almost like pain you know it you such a deep sensation of attraction to something that I felt towards the music that Yoma was playing. No conscious memory of seeing the basses. But later when I saw the episode, I went, oh damn, I'm just I just following the instructions, you know, that all came at the same time. Um those are my first memories of music. Well you can do worse than follow Mr. Rogers. Amen. I agree. I think you did well. I agree. And then your first instrument was what? Well, it would have been violin. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any um, half-size or quarter-size cellos at the program that I first entered music through. So it was fortunately or unfortunately violin. And that, yeah. Unfortunately, you didn't like the violin? I didn't really like the violin. I like other people playing the violin. But yeah. I was seeking that sound. I was seeking what I heard. You wanted the cello. I wanted the cello. And thank God. And then I just skipped past the cello and went right up. Right up to the, the bass. The next floor up to the bass. Yeah. And then when, when did the bass start? You know, I don't know if the bass has started yet. It's such um immense territory. And for all the technical facility one can accumulate early on, it, again, serves a very profound function in music. And I, I think that the older one gets, the more one matures, the better they are at actually being a bass player. So I don't know. I don't know if bass has begun. You know. 
When you started playing, how much were you practicing? I don't remember, really. Probably a lot. I I don't re- I don't remember those early days. I just remember um, playing by ear and suddenly hearing this music that I was told was jazz, and having a very deep, again, visceral reaction to whatever they were doing. You know, having no understanding of what it was or how it worked. Um, yeah. Are you still that kind of instinctual player? or yeah. I am. Because this is what scares people about jazz. It's oh. incredibly complicated. It, it seems is. like endless scales. It is. Um, all that theory, do you know all that stuff? No. Even I know now? some, yeah. 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 And, and it never ends because the invitation, not because, I don't feel authorized to speak on behalf of the genre in any way because I would say I'm a jazz singer when I need to be and I can play bass for other jazz musicians. But the center piece, like the center of what it is I do, isn't really jazz because of that practice and devotion that is required. You don't think you have it? Not in that way, not in that way. As an instrumentalist, which is fine, it's, it's cool, because I can still support the instrumentalists who are in that devotional devotional practice. But that's how you started. You were Absolutely. you were known as a jazz bassist. Absolutely, you, and I you still- won, You won Best New Artist, I think, Grammy right. for that. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. And still, it's, I wonder what the parallel is in writing. It's like you you can support you can be a part of something without actually being a devotee of that craft. Mm. Um, well, most writing is all. You mean writing music or mm, writing? I mean writing word. So what do, you know, because if I go on YouTube, mm-hmm. I see you playing with you know, Herbie Hancock and mm-hmm. Chick Corea. Yeah. What are they, what are you giving them then? Um, There's got to be more technically. Yeah sophisticated players or at least more theoretically sophisticated mm-hmm. players than yeah. you you're doing this by instinct what do they get when i ask you to come and play with me what what am i getting you're getting listening mm-hmm. and light speed response and some a dance floor for your dance hmm. i'm i'm giving you a moving dance floor um and i have studied some of the theory just to say partially i like to rearticulate this because for any uh young aspiring instrumentalist listening i want to make sure that i'm speaking that truth that to be a quote-unquote jazz musician like don't listen to me <laughs> listen to uh scott collie or um you know ben williams or christian mcbride or linda O or players who if you if you want to have a cue into the expression of the jazz pedagogy listen to those bass players i'm doing something that's valuable and beautiful and works and supports but it's not really coming from that kind of devotional space it's very intuitive mm-hmm. and very much in the presence uh, uh very much something that evolves in relationship with players you know so yes i can play with herbie i can play with chick because i'm i'm um becoming what is needed in that moment with my technical facility to you know come as my voice as my listening as my voice it's almost like an active listening um with players like that mm-hmm. hmm. so are they are they because you're a band leader as well mm-hmm. when you're playing with players like that are they kind of setting the tone and then you're responding mm-hmm. is it more a call response with them yeah it's it's more like well with somebody like <laughs> you know harvey hancock or jerry allen they want to have the conversation that can only happen with you in the room. Hmm. It's not like, okay, here are these 10 songs. You happen to be the one here. So yeah, come get in on this and make this work for me. Especially with Herbie, especially with Jerry. It's more like, oh, who are you? What do we sound like together? And in that space, it might kind of be an advantage not be too tethered to a technical or historical or pedagogical approach to making the music because then you're free to discover what's actually happening in real time, which might not sound like anything that that player did before. It's gonna have their characteristic, but that 
is my superpower, you know, of being present and going like, whoa, what, what is this actually right now? Uh, let's make it and it won't probably happen again. And that was that, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you have to, do you have to make eye contact with a player to do that? Do you have to no. see what he's doing? Just here. Really? Mm-hmm. Could you do it blindfolded? Yeah, of course. Really? Yeah, of course. I don't look, I don't look at the instrument when I play. No, I don't mean your instrument. Oh. I mean, oh, of course. I mean, I mean the combination of like if if you're playing with you know Wayne Shorter here, yeah, and Herbie Hancock there. Yeah, that's How much a great that, day, you know, by the way. What? <laughs> that's a great day. I wish that would happen more. <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, uh, string quartets. The, yeah, the players kind of have to see each other. They have uh, to see their cues. Right. I'm wondering how important is that in right. when you're playing in a jazz combo. Ooh. Well, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Wayne Shorter's quartet. They are very much connected with each other, looking at each other, but I am positive they could do everything they do blindfolded mm-hmm. because they're they're co-composing a scene, you know? It's like, I'm sure actors could have a perfectly potent and coherent improvised scene blindfolded because you're, you're responding to the reality of emotional response you you're responding to what comes at you and eventually a momentum of the scene is generated and that is propelling you forward as much as you're creating it as you go you know the that mode of performance co-composition improvisation is like that okay next time you're with herbie hancock i want you to blindfold yourself cool. and see see how it goes i don't i would never ask him to do that but <laughs> i'll think i'll just i'll hold it in the space and see what happens if i don't look right. i mean I remember um, dancing tango a little bit when I was a teenager. And, you know, there's certain fundamentals that you learn, and it's an improvisational dance form, right, obviously. When you're dancing with a phenomenal dancer, everything just kind of works, you mm-hmm. know? And I remember that experience of being very inexperienced and getting on the dance floor and just being like, oh, damn, I can do it. I'm good. Shoot, every, I'm twisting and turning and kicking and all kinds of stuff. And then you go dance with the next partner and it's like, you know, it's like a fumble. Looks like a like a silverware drawer without a divider, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's also something to be said for the potency of the master, you know, that partially just by playing with somebody like that, the the immensity of their musicianship and ability to make everything work kind of heightens your own capacity and shows what is possible. We'll be back with more from Esperanza Spalding after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from Esperanza Spalding. What's it like working with Wayne Shorter? You talked about his his writing before. Yeah. Um, what's it like playing with him? We've actually only played a few times. Mm-hmm. And it felt like visiting another planet. It truly felt like we've been living on one musical planet your whole life, seeing different lands and territories and cities and towns and ruralities and municipalities. And then you step (laughs) onto what you think is just another land, you know? Music starts, okay, here we are. And all of a sudden you recognize like, nope, all of this is different. All of this is is extraterrestrial. All of this is expansive. Mm. All of this is is just more and different and shaped like the earth. And maybe the gravity is similar, but it's not. Um, he is so incredibly adept at connecting seemingly disparate ideas Mm -hmm. in a room in a conversation and musically that is it's like it feels like you you have to start listening at light speed to be able to connect what just came over there with what's happening over there um that that is nebulous i apologize it's hard to describe it but um is it scary playing with someone like that yeah sure (laughs) <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. And why is it scary? Why is it scary? What does scary mean in that context? Is it scary? It's scary in a sense of, oh, damn, can I can I hang? You mm-hmm. know, can I help? Can I woo? Can I feel free? What is it of the thi- of the most that I can bring into the space? Will it have a place? Will it work? You know? You know, it's like sitting at a table and a conversation's already happening and you're like, I don't know what anybody here is talking about, but I'm being asked to come and speak. So it's something about having the trust that your life is enough, mm-hmm. that what you've lived um, endows you with insight and perspective and presence mm-hmm. and that the other people at the table actually want to talk with you. So it's not about, oh, I'm able to refer to the things that you all have studied and know. It's something about having the confidence that at any point in time we can find like a, a common space to converse. Do you always find, do you always feel confident when you're playing with someone like that? You can find it? Do you ever feel nervous like, this guy's talking about something? I can't. Sure. Really? Of course. We Don't we all? I mean, hopefully, that's how you know you're expanding mm-hmm. and having new tastes and new experiences yeah. you know it's not always feel equipped like i'm gonna come in and slay um i don't mean that but mm-hmm. are there times you're playing with someone i'm gonna use wayne shorter and and you just feel like man i'm just disappointing here i'm not contributing no well listening is contributing i mean that's so much of the gift of somebody who's so full like a wayne shorter just hanging out with him at the house i mean just just listening is becomes dialogue, you know, and becomes dynamic. Because um, we, we need to be heard, too, you know. For all that poetry and uh, wisdom and uh, philosoph- philosophical playmaking that one can do, it's not fun when you're just by yourself in the house, right? I think he's really good at, at amusing himself, but... Um, yeah, that's that's a valuable. That's what I mean by being the moving dance floor. It is. It's valuable. It's mm. valuable. Um, so, a very different artist uh, that you like, and I'd like to know more about her influence is Joni Mitchell. Oh God. Now, Joni Mitchell is interesting to me because she has. She seems to have two audiences. Mm. Everybody likes. Everybody knows Big Yellow Taxi mm-hmm. and Both Sides Now, and mm-hmm. and people love her and revere for being part of a generation. But jazz people really mm-hmm. like her. What is it you're hearing in her? What inspires you? I mean, jazz people like creative 
seeking music, you know, in general. All the jazz people that I know don't just listen to jazz music. Mm-hmm. They, we, they listen to music that seems to be reaching and finding new combinations of the sounds that we're all working with out here, essentially. Um, so what is it about her music that, what what are you hearing there? I think if I actually try to articulate it, it's going to be a lie. Because beyond the obvious that points that we all are drawn to, like the the poetic imagery and the unexpected way that she illuminates a scene and brings us into a place and a space and an emotional understanding of a person or a relationship. There's just some, there's something magical and magnetic, which doesn't tell you anything. But I, the way, where I feel the draw, I can't honestly articulate. Um, I think part of it is the attraction to somebody showing possibility that's so far beyond anything that's been revealed in that genre or mode of playing before, you know, as a quote unquote folk musician or as a poet or as a lyricist. It's like, you know, watching a I I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. I should I say when I even said uh, her name, you sort of yeah put your hand up to your heart like yeah. you were you were slightly stricken. And that's the that's the that's the um, yeah that's the mystery. Mm-hmm. You know that's the mystery. You can hear strands of the sort of thing she does in I think particularly your the Emily album. Okay, cool. That's when I discovered her music. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have mm-hmm. you ever met her? Yeah, for sure. I jammed at her house a few times. Okay. This year, last you, you're year. Telling that story now. Uh, well, what? I, I, <laughs> say I, very surreal experience. Actually, but oh, so, well, back up. Tell us okay. that story. How you right. how you ended up there? Who was there? Well, the first time that I went to her house, I went to her house because, um. We okay. I had to back up a step further. Okay. Last year, I moved to LA for seven months to be near Wayne and to be on the ground moving forward the development of this opera because mm-hmm. I felt like it had gotten stagnant somehow. You know, just the the logistics of workshopping it and getting it off of the the page and out of the speculative into the real. And I thought, I need to just go there. You know, Wayne was having some really intense health issues, and I wanted him to feel like this thing is really happening. Like, we're doing this. We're doing this. So that turned into some very inventive approaches to making workshops happen, orchestral workshops happen, scene workshops happen, at a time when he couldn't physically write. He was suffering from a metabolic tremor. And so we had to figure out a way to get what he had written up into an orchestra. And I thought that the most invigorating thing for him would be to actually feel coming back at him what he had written so that it would feel like an opera's really happening here. So we were doing those every week, uh, every two weeks. And at some point it came up, well, gosh, Joni heard that you're doing it, Joni. Joni Mitchell heard that you're doing this and wishes that she could see it, but you know it's hard for her to leave the house, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know whose idea it was. I feel like it was her assistant. So like, why don't we have the rehearsal at, at Joni's house? So we did. We took a- and Now, does she have a formal role in the opera or is she- No, just-, just... Uh, and I mean, I, she wanted to hear what Wayne was working on and thought it was cool. So she opened her home to us. So we brought- a piano player and about five singers and a small little orchestra, probably eight players. And we crammed into her music room and she sat next to Wayne and I sat next to Wayne and Frank Gary, who's working on the set, who will be making the sets also came over. And it was, it was just a surreal 
moment in time that I actually forgot about until you just said it because it was so surreal. It didn't seem like a part of this plane, you know? Because mm-hmm. those, I would say those are two of my favorite creators of all time, you know? And yeah, a lot can be said about the moment. Partially it was surreal because I was so um, dissatisfied with the the libretto at that particular moment. I was just cringing that like the master of words was there hearing my like unfinished words. It's so ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I was I was biting my nails, you know, for sure the whole time. And, and was that the first time you'd met her? No, I met her a few times before, but it didn't stick, you know. Yeah. Because I was just drooling and, you know. So this Probably time, not forming sentences. I was still dreaming, drooling and forming sentences, but she said she liked my my life force suit and that is that the one you're wearing that's now. That's what I'm wearing now, and yeah, that it says life force. It says life force. It does, and that really lifted my spirits. Yeah. Is that did you design that? Of course, yeah. Okay. I wanted to um, stay in touch with the um, yeah the focal point of my work, you know. I'm I'm seeking ways to translate the the po- I'm seeking ways to um, bring us into resonance with our unique and abundant life force energy, and I also wanted a break from worrying about what to wear at events or just in the street or anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was going to be a year of hard work, so I made a work suit for myself. I just said. So that's all you wear? Yeah, that's all I wear. Yeah. How many of those do you have? 11, 12. You know, enough to You're like watch. a superhero. You just get in the costume I every tr- day. That's the that's the goal. That's the goal. Be a superhero? Yeah. 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 I mean my my version of it. Be a super me, you know. Um So what did jo- I'm interested. What did Joni I've never met Joni Mitchell. Oh, you will. Uh I would love to. Yeah. Uh we're both Canadian after all. Uh-huh. Facts. What did she say to you? What did when when she heard what you were doing? Mom, I don't remember. She said all kinds of things. It was it was out of body. It was out of body. But later, I did play some jam sessions, and I got to play bass for her, and I got to play an arrangement for her of the wolf that lives in Lindsay, and she dug that. So I, I did. Did she was she singing when you were playing? No, I just performed. Yeah, when she I played for her when she was singing. I mean, oh, really? it's like living room, like a session like this, you know. She invites over musicians and we play the songs she wants to sing and and people play songs that she wants to hear or songs that they are working on. Really? And that they Did, think she, she does, would like. So what you talked about playing with with Herbie Hancock. What What's yeah. it like playing with Joni Mitchell? Well, it's the deepest listening you've ever done in your life. She's the deepest listening ever. Because it's not about like, oh, I'm going to play with Joni. I am listening for what she's doing in that moment and where her voice is going. And I want to offer the, the, the tones, the rhythms that make it feel good for her to sing mm-hmm. at that moment, you know? How did it go? It was perfect. It wow. was perfect. She sang Loverman. And a couple other tunes. Uh, uh, the old song, Lover Man? The, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she loves, you know, she loves jazz. Old classics. Mm-hmm. The jazz mm-hmm. standards. And yeah. she, she had trouble for a long time finding bass players. She always said bass players didn't understand her music. Because mm. you did. Mm. I don't know, but, I don't know, but, hmm, that's interesting. It did okay? Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. We'll be back with more Bruce's conversation with Esperanza Spalding after a quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. 
Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back, but before we hear the rest of Bruce's interview with Esperanza, let's listen to a track off her album, Emily's Devolution, which we'll talk a bit more about in a second. First, here's the song, Change Us. You said you weren't that, you weren't the prodigy, and you weren't, even now, you, you describe yourself as not, you don't feel like you're fully a part of the kind of jazz world. You're not. But it's, it's, um. I was just going to say, you went to Berkeley, which is yeah. like the MIT of jazz. Oh, God. It's not. Bless its heart. It's, it's an incredible convening space mm-hmm. for anybody passionate about pursuing a career in music. It is. It truly, 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 truly is. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's it's like those terms, that nomenclature of what the music is, I, I think that the term in, refers to a very specific kind of devotion. So when I'm saying I'm not a quote-unquote jazz musician, it's just out of respect for for that modality of devotion. Mm-hmm. I'm devoted to making and to creating, and that's that's its own thing. It's just it's okay with me that I'm that I'm not, you know, an emissary <laughs> of that devotional practice. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's something also about wanting to get out from under the signifier of being a jazz musician, because I feel like in some ways I I used that or it was used to promote me as a creator. And now out of respect for what the the devotional practice is, I wanna I wanna make sure that it we're clear about what's what, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, because you I mean you do a lot of different kinds of music. Trying to I mean, re listening to Emily, which mm-hmm. was your album before this one, I think. Well the album before this one, you can't get Oh, was the, oh it was the it was Facebook a, album. It was I want to ask you about that. Yeah. But Emily was like a really, that was a really heavy, mm. I, I wish our co-host Rick Rubin was here because he's an old heavy metal guy. He mm. would like guitar solos. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you listening to when you did that album? Damn. I was listening to, hmm, I, a lot of David Bowie, a lot of Jimi Hendrix, um, 
cream, I, not a lot of cream, but listening to cream a little bit. I had seen a documentary about Ginger Baker. Um, and you worked with Tony Visconti, who yeah. produced a lot of Bowie, yeah. a lot of T Rex. Yeah, it's got exactly. a lot of that good vibe in it. Yeah, yeah, and um, mo. It's like sonically, the world that Emily needed to do what she came to do had those elements that you described. It it was loud and it generated movement and it was about a power trio and it was about an expression of power and breaking out of whatever had been practiced and whatever had become familiar, whatever had become fixed identity. So that's what Emily needed to to burst into existence. And Emily was a real character that yeah. you that you it's my it's the lava of myself. It's it was the middle character of me. But it was also maybe more than your other work about the songs themselves. True. You've written a lot of songs, but true. we tend to think of jazz as kind of a flow. True, true. And this was more like a song like uh, Change Us. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's right. There's no there's no, no reason that wouldn't be a top 40 hit. I know, that's right. Did you want it to be a top 40 hit? Mm-mm. I mean, I didn't I didn't want it to not be a top 40 hit, <laughs> but um that hasn't hmm. I mean, damn. I asked Emily what she wanted to do, and those were the songs that came out. And I didn't ask too many questions, you know. Hmm. There wasn't a lot of well, what are the what is it, what should the influences be in this? Like, what do we want to happen with this song? What do we, it was just like, here's the instruction manual from Emily. Let's build it and and see what we get, and we'll mm-hmm. morph it from there. You like the instruction manuals? I do like the instruction manuals. I trust that. Because I trust you, that because you also did an album where you said it was on Facebook Live. We're going to mm-hmm. do it in seventy seven hours. Yeah, and you did the whole thing. Yeah, and everybody because, could watch. Well, that offering that performance was the performance of the act of creation so how do you make an album of creation mm-hmm. they make an album of the creation process that was a way that we figured out that we could capture or share my favorite part of making things which is that moment where you get the hit or you think of the thing and then you forge it that process of forging it into the thing was the focal mm-hmm. point of that project um as an act of improvisation, actually. It's like, a, I quote Wayne a lot. One of my favorite quotes is he says, composition is improvisation slowed down and improvisation is composition sped up. Mm-hmm. And that's what that project was. Have you gone back to watch that after you've no. done it? No, thank you. No, 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 <laughs> no thank you. I'll never do that again. No, no, I haven't. Why not? Well, it's it already happened, you know? It's like, it it already, it was a... It was a thing that was alive in a moment. It's like a kiss or a or a dance on a bridge that you didn't expect with a stranger. It it happened, and the magic of it was that it was happening in real time, and that it wasn't going to happen again, and that everybody with us was with us in that moment at that particular spot on the continuum of eternity. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have any need to go back and look at it. Hmm. Um, th- what I compare it to when I was watching clips of it was Let It Be, which is that's what the Beatles tried to do. They tried oh. to show people how they were making an album. Oh, cool. That's why I'm wondering if you'd sort of learned something about how you made music mm. if you did that. Well, part of the, I guess, impetus for opening up that process was to share the kind of the, the ugly moments and the scary moments and the risk and the yeah the 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 imperfections that go into making anything beautiful so to to let it be seen that most of the process of making the song was working with something that didn't really work but you can hear how a seed of that then led to what it became and I felt like that was something worth sharing in a moment where so much of what we interface with is polished and complete and kind of mm-hmm. seems like it just like oh, dropped down glistening from the heavens. I was excited to share who I actually am, 
who we all actually are as creators, that that's most of who we are. The, the majority of what makes us performers and artists and creators is that process. The finished thing is only like the last one hundredth of the mm-hmm. whole being, you know. But, but most artists, they want to protect that other 99. They don't want that out. Exactly. that's the ugly part. I've, so why do you want that out? I like that part. I wanted to celebrate that part. And, you know, that's my element also. The same way that performers get on stage and show their best stuff. They show, like, the best that they have to give. To me, me creating is my best stuff. That's why I wanted to share that as the performance, hmm. you know. Which is kind of a jazz idea. I mean, probably more yeah. than more than pop. Maybe so. Um, when did the singing start for you? I'm, I'm, you know, I was just thinking. I was like, does that really matter? I mean, f- probably eight or nine or ten. But I feel like maybe we could talk about. I don't know what's what's brewing. Now, I mean, singing started when I was out in the world, probably 15. And I I feel like this particular moment in my life as a creator, I'm less interested in like the origin and I'm more interested in now as an origin point, you know. Okay, well, let me reframe it. I'm interested in I'm interested in what's happened mm. because I went back and read some early reviews, and they'd say, "Oh, her slender voice as she sings oh. along." And then you listen to these albums, and you're like, "No, that's like a powerhouse." <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I don't really think about my voice. I have to confess, it's, um, I really, I practice, you know, I try to sing to build, I, I, I study to sit, to build capacity and different timbres and all that, but. Do you sing to compose? I do sing to compose. So you're working on this opera. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the segue. Um, um, I'm are you singing it. those parts? Are you? I will sing in some capacity in this opera. No, I don't mean in the oh, final. Oh. Oh, pro- oh, I don't I mean in the final product. Okay. I mean when you're working on it. Mm-hmm. Are you are you singing in your head? Are you singing out loud? Sometimes this process of making an opera is upside down and inside out from how operas are usually made mm-hmm. because it took me so long to get the libretto written that Wayne already wrote all the music so now we're reckoning with this incredible body of work which is the music that he wrote sort of in these three acts already and drawing story and language out from that um so in that case sometimes i sing but i'm actually trying to hear what an operatic voice would do with some of these lines um, and there's a lot of speaking because some of the passages, the music functions as the environment and they're having a conversation, recitative, it's called, sure. or sometimes just spoken through. Um, um, thinking about or, or further unpackaging that invitation to write what you wish for. Mm-hmm. The opera seeks to interrupt the repetition of the same story being played out that's played out in this original myth and i'm looking for a way that as a writer i can even interrupt the way that the endings are usually created hmm. um what's the what's the myth is it uh, a common it's the myth, myth of iphigenia so she's the one who gets her throat slit well she sacrificed so that the winds will return and that Agamemnon and his brother and the fleet they've assembled to go recapture Helen can sail across the ocean to Troy mm-hmm. um, so it's the story before the Trojan horse story that we all know right um, and I it, this process of making the opera has unlocked a question 
about who gets to tell the story. Even me as a as a woman in the 21st century and it's a time when voices that have often been in the background now get to come up and 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 direct new narratives, new speculative narratives. We get to bring to the to the public arena our stories that have been silenced for so long. Mm-hmm. Even in this space, I'm asking the question, how do we how do I how do we how do I break the cycle of the tyranny of the individual voice of the storyteller and i i wonder what becomes possible in the telling of this story when figures people characters who are often scripted into storytelling mm-hmm. opera singers or musicians or actors what becomes possible when their voice is activated in the actual design of the story in the telling of the story um, that is really, really challenging to do. It's beyond my capacity right now, but that's that's what we're reaching for. Who's telling the story now? Well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and Euripides told it, and it's it's part of the Odyssey, and it was surely a myth that had been passed on for generations before it got written down. Um, but I... I am I am really curious right now what happens when the ending isn't prescribed and instead of barreling towards what we've been told must happen we say no what happens if we leave space for an unknown ending to emerge from us I guess co-creating in real time so that's the sort of that is the jazz ethos isn't it we're going to substitute chords. We're going to change it. Well, and all of those are just methods for approaching life in real time mm-hmm. and improvising in response to what's actually happening. You know, it's not about like, oh, I'm going to change the chord because I'm a jazz musician. It's about while well, I have I have access to enough um, material that I can respond to what's actually happening um, from a, a large batch of possibilities. I'm not. Um, I'm not fixed by what I've practiced. I'm not fixed by what I've learned. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to happen next. Oh, that's it. Yeah. I'm not, I am not limited to what I've learned is supposed to happen next. That's the key to how, how I want to uh, break open the ending of this opera. Yes. Right. I'm glad we're talking about this. That seems like a perfect place to stop. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, amazing. All right, well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to Esperanza Spalding for taking time away from cracking the story structure of our upcoming opera to talk with Bruce. You can hear all of our favorite Esperanza Spalding songs by checking out the playlist for this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Records produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia Lobel, and Leah Rose for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch 
um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.